This podcast is sponsored by the FG Barnes Group with showrooms in Canterbury and Maidstone, offering a range of new and approved used cars, including MG, Seat and Vauxhall. Kent Online News. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast. Nicola Everett. Hello, hope you're okay. Thanks ever so much for downloading today's podcast. It's Tuesday, November the 29th. Coming up, you can hear from the man planning to build film studios in Ashford. Firefighters tell us about their new campaign and reveal just how many kitchen fires they're being called to in Kent. Plus, we speak to the Whitstable man who was told he was too skinny to be a professional footballer and is now a champion bodybuilder. But first, more than 18 months after the brutal murder of Sarah Everard by a then serving Met Police officer from Kent, more changes are being made at the UK's biggest police force. Wayne Cousins from Deal kidnapped and killed the 33-year-old in March last year. At the time he was given a whole life sentence, bosses from the Met said this, We only want the best of the best in the Met and we will always act when our employees fall below the standards we and the public expect and erode the trust we depend upon. Well, since then, concerns have been raised about culture within the force. It's vetting procedures and failures in disciplinaries, which wrongly kept hundreds of staff in jobs. Now an anonymous hotline has been set up to report corrupt or abusive officers. James Harmon is heading up a new command group. So today we're launching the Metropolitan Police Anti-Corruption and Abuse Hotline. This is the first hotline of its kind in the UK. We're very proud to have partnered with Crime Stoppers, an independent charity who will be running and managing this hotline for us. We're appealing to the public today to call us with information about Metropolitan Police officers or Metropolitan Police staff who are corrupt or abusing their position of power. That that abuse of position can take different forms. It could be financially motivated, it could be sexually motivated, it could be based in hatred and discrimination. And whatever it is, we're saying call us anonymously if you wish, we will investigate it and we'll put a stop to it. We are aware that recent months and over the whole of the last year there have been far too many cases which have led to the public quite understandably losing faith, losing trust in the Metropolitan Police. We are on the front foot to put that right. We're on the front foot to rebuild trust. And this hotline, the first of its kind, asking for the public's help, is a step forward, we hope, in driving up standards in the Metropolitan Police and representing, if I may, the thousands of dedicated officers and staff who would risk their lives to the public every single day. We are here to to receive information as early as possible about corruption and abuse so we can put a stop to behaviours before they escalate. We can put a stop to them before any serious harm is caused. This is a difficult message in some ways, but we hope it's a good message and that the Met is getting on the front foot in trying to deal with these issues. We're being proactive and we think it's the right thing to ask for the public's help in doing that. To the majority of officers, we're doing it for them because their hard work, their bravery, their dedication is being tarnished by the minority. To the minority, whatever their conduct is, it should stop, it should stop now, and they should know that we are serious about identifying them and dealing with them. Elsewhere today, police have sealed off a road in Canterbury after wartime explosives were found in a garden. Homes were evacuated in St Peter's Place near Westgate Towers earlier. The bomb squad was called to look at items which are described as resembling artillery shells. 
A large emergency response in Sandwich has been one of our most read stories today. Police and fire vehicles were seen parked in Woodnersborough Road where the rope walk and the butts pathways meet. Firefighters confirmed they were called just before half nine this morning to assist Kent Police who'd been contacted about concern for a man in the area. It's since been confirmed that a man in his 50s has died. Well, our reporter Sam Lennon has been to the town for the podcast. We were first told of uh, the new- News at about uh, 10 o'clock or so in the morning when uh, a contact uh, rang me uh, from Sandwich rang me to say that uh, there was there was a high emergency services presence uh, of police and, and fire engines in the butts area of Sandwich and that uh, that person believed that a body had been found. From then on, um, from then on, a member of the public gave us a picture and uh, a woman who also a second person uh, tipped us off. A woman who didn't want to be named, who said it was it was quite a just distressing situation. Uh, from then on, uh, I took off uh, eleven o'clock. I took off to Sandwich to actually uh, uh, to speak to more local people and also take some more pictures of the scene because the pictures we had uh, were submitted. But uh, I left there at the Ashford office at eleven o'clock, and by the time I got uh, I got to. Uh, to the centre of Sandwich, it was 12 o'clock and the emergency services had already gone. At this stage, it's not known how exactly um, the man died and of course there's no, no clue to his identity, but uh, a member of the public uh, who, who contacted us, who wanted to be anonymous, said she had seen uh, divers there and she thought were police frogmen and she described the situation as, as very dis- Thank you to Sam for that update. Police say they're not treating the death as suspicious. Kent Online News. A jury's retired to consider verdicts in the case of a man who's accused of murdering a Kent mum. 34-year-old Alexandra Morgan went missing from Sissinghurst last November. Her remains were later found at a building site in Sevenoaks. Mark Brown, who's 41 and from St Leonard's-on-Sea in East Sussex, also denies killing another woman six months earlier. Two men have appeared in court accused of climbing up onto the Dartford crossing as part of a climate protest. Traffic was brought to a standstill when the QE2 bridge was closed for 36 hours during a Just Stop Oil demo last month. A 33 and 39-year-old will go on trial next March after pleading not guilty to causing a public nuisance. Meantime, a new injunction's been granted to try and stop climate protesters causing disruption on the M25. 65 people who've already been arrested as part of the Just Stop Oil demonstrations are specifically named in the court document. It means anyone who climbs up and attaches themselves to gantries or other structures could face a big fine or a prison sentence. Now, a woman who caused havoc across Folkestone and Ashford, often while she was drunk, has been jailed. Rhiannon Thomas tried to attack people with weapons, threatened a man with a knife and even spat at and tried to kick a dog. The 33-year-old from St John Moore Avenue in Hythe was also convicted of shoplifting and sentenced to 12 months in prison. A man arrested as part of investigations into an aggravated burglary in Dartford has been released on bail. Police and forensic officers have spent several days at the scene on Wentworth Drive. A bomb disposal team was also called. The 31-year-old suspect has been let go until January. Now, the government says a robust screening process has been set up following concerns about an outbreak of diphtheria at an asylum processing centre in Kent. This is something we told you about in detail on the Kent Online podcast yesterday. Well, since then, it's been confirmed 50 cases 
cases have been identified at the site in Manston and a man who died after being held there also had the disease. Immigration Minister Robert Jemrick has given this statement in the Commons. The control and testing of infectious diseases is led by the UK Health Security Agency and the Department for Health and Social Care and the Home Office continue to work closely with both of them, taking their advice on all of these matters and following it. It's important to emphasise that the UK HSA has been clear that the risk to the wider UK population from onward transmission of diphtheria is very low, thanks in no small part to our excellent childhood immunisation programme, and because the infection is typically passed on through close prolonged contact with a case. The UK HSA confirmed that they believe it is likely these cases were developed before they entered the UK. The Home Office has worked closely with the NHS and the UK HSA to identify and to isolate anyone with a diphtheria infection, including providing diphtheria vaccinations and moving confirmed cases into isolation. While these robust processes and plans for this type of situation are already in train, it's absolutely right that we now are vigilant. That is what the public would expect, and that is what we are doing. This includes robust screening processes on arrival at Western Jetfoil in Dover to proactively identify those with symptoms of diphtheria. Round-the-clock health facilities at Manston, including emergency department consultants and paramedics, guidance in multiple languages on spotting the symptoms of diphtheria, an enhanced diphtheria vaccination programme offering to all those arriving at Manston. And I can confirm that of those who arrived at the facility this weekend, 100% took up that vaccine offer. Testing for those presenting themselves with symptoms and for close contacts of those cases. Those testing positive are being isolated in a designated place. Today we are going above and beyond the UK HSA baseline by instituting new guidance on the transportation and accommodation of individuals displaying diphtheria symptoms. So from today, no one presenting with symptoms will progress into the asylum accommodation system. They will either remain at Manston, isolating for a short period, or they will travel to a designated isolation centre in secure transport, where they will be treated until deemed medically fit. We're engaging with French counterparts to assess the state of infectious diseases in the camps in northern France. Mr Speaker, I fully understand and appreciate the concerns that have been raised, and I can assure the House that the Home Office is acutely aware of our responsibility both to those in care but also to the British public. For myself, for the Home Secretary and for the Government as a whole, public health is paramount, and we will take all steps necessary to ensure that the public are protected. Labour's Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper questioned why Suella Braverman 
didn't give the statement instead. This is supposed to be her top priority. We've had two UQs, a a debate and this statement in the last few weeks on this chaos, and she hasn't done any of them. You have to ask, what is she for? She obviously doesn't have a grip, and she has made this chaos worse. The government has failed to stop the proliferation of criminal gangs in the Channel, is still refusing to adopt Labour's proposal for a new National Crime Agency unit to target the gangs, and has failed to sort out the chaos in asylum decision-making, so they are only taking around half as many as six years ago, uh, even though they have more staff, and just 2% of last year's small boat cases have been decided, creating a backlog of nearly 100,000 people waiting more than six months for a decision, compared to just 4,000 when they took office all of which has led to a completely inappropriate use of hotels at the last minute with no proper information for local councils and no proper information for public health officials. And then, of course, the chaotic handling of the situation at Manston. The information that the Minister has just given us is that there are 50 diphtheria cases. Can he confirm that that compares to just three last year? Can you tell us when ministers were first told of diphtheria cases at Manston? When were they warned? By mid-October, the Home Office admitted publicly that there were cases at Manston, but on the 26th of October, the Home Office officials told the Select Committee they had sufficient health arrangements in place to address diphtheria. Clearly, they did not. The government still kept thousands of people in overcrowded conditions, described by one person as being huddled around fan heaters, thousands of people in overcrowded conditions trying to stay warm. Clearly, these are conditions which make it easy for infectious diseases to spread. The processes that he has just described now clearly are important, but why on earth were they not put in place many weeks ago? It took until the 11th of November, after thousands of people had been held there for weeks, in Manston for weeks, for screening and vaccinations on diphtheria to be recommended for everyone passing through Manston. What on earth were they doing in the meantime? Because even then, on that very same day, the Home Office was moving people who'd been in Manston into hotels across the country without even telling councils or public health officials, and including in one case, specifically telling the council these were not transfers from Manston, even though they were. Others where councils were told nothing at all, and no information for public health officials about whether people needed further diphtheria screening and vaccinations, including leaving people to seek treatment for themselves for diphtheria symptoms at local A&E departments. I'm sure the Immigration Minister is working really hard to try and sort this out. The problem is that everyone else is struggling to clear up the Home Secretary's chaos, and she isn't even here. It is chaotic. This issue is too important not to have a grip in place, and if the Home Secretary is too frit to attend this House and take responsibility for her decisions, she should get out the way and let someone else do the job. And the government is also reportedly looking to create a list of safe countries to help tackle the refugee crisis. Under the plans, asylum seekers who've come from certain places would have their applications dealt with in less than 10 days. The Home Secretary says she's committed to using every tool available to return those who shouldn't be here to their home country. This podcast is sponsored by the FG Barnes Group.
with car dealerships in Canterbury and Maidstone. Next today, and the Kent Online podcast has been told that we should start to see new film studios being created in Kent by the middle of next year. Netflix, Amazon and HBO have all been linked to the multi-million pound project in Ashford. And while it's not been confirmed yet if they will be involved, we do know it'll see the old Newtown Railway Works transformed. First, let's hear from the main man behind the project, developer Mark Quinn. It's taken us so far nearly five years um, to to find the site, buy it, um, go through all the due diligence and to finally now to be at a point where we're starting to reconstruct it and, you know, to create something special within these buildings is going to be such a, such a privilege, really. I think for Ashford, it, it will mean that it's going to be taking part in an industry that's one of the fastest growing industries in the world. It's going to mean, you know, over a thousand jobs. It's going to mean opportunities for young people um, and it's going to mean uh, basically a, a, an incredible opportunity for people to, to work in an industry perhaps they hadn't thought about working in. So what's happened so far is that uh, we've taken all the asbestos off the roofs, um, we've uh, remediated about eight acres of the site um, and that's contained basically 100 years worth of contamination from making trains. So it's uh, been, uh, it's been good fun um, and, and we're basically now coming to the, to the end of that. And what will happen now is enabling works which put the infrastructure utilities that we need into this um, and then finally we start to, to go up. Uh, within the buildings and also outside with the film studios. So incredibly exciting for us. I think you'll start seeing changes probably uh, from the middle of next year. The company that uh, we're in uh, we're in legals with are a billion pound uh, uh, film fund. Uh, so they, they've done this before. Um, they're very good at, at what they're doing. Um, and we've actually seen what they've done in other parts uh, of the country and the world. So essentially uh, we, we feel very uh, comfortable that we're, we're getting involved with the right partners. They're ultimately their customers are going to be uh, people like Netflix, people like Apple, people like Amazon. Um, those are the people that need content in order to, to make their companies continue to grow and be successful. We think it'll probably take from when we start uh, in the summer, uh, you're probably talking about, I would say, completion of the, the entire scheme, uh, probably uh, three and a half, four years. Uh, and, and sections of the scheme should be complete within about two and a half years. If you head to Kent Online today, you can see pictures of what the site looks like now. And as Mark mentioned there, it'll bring lots of jobs and investment into the town. Let's hear a bit more on that from Ashford MP Damien Green. I think it's it's not only really exciting to have an international film studio so that we will get international stars here. That will be quite exciting for people. But more importantly, uh, the fact that uh, Ashford College is going to build an extension here specifically for craft skills for film and TV will mean that it provides training and job opportunities for young people in Ashford that simply didn't exist before. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. I can remember you know, going back a couple of decades looking at this site and thinking it's really close to the town centre, it's, it's really close to the outlet, uh, so why is it still derelict? And, and the answer has always been nobody could think of what to do with these huge buildings we're, we're standing in at the moment, which are listed so you can't knock them down. And the inspirational idea of using them for, for film studios uh, came about and that has unlocked what is a huge site near the centre of Ashford, which will mean that within three, four years, you know, where we're standing now, which is you know, the middle of a shed with no roof, um, will be full of apartments, full of people living here, restaurants, uh, people working in film and, and a hotel. Uh, so it'll be utterly transformational. 
Ashford needs jobs, Ashford needs opportunities, Ashford needs to put itself on the map. Every, every, you know, it's a competitive world. We want to make Ashford um, an exciting place to live and work. And having international film studios here is exciting. It's, it's not what people associate uh, with, with Ashford uh, in the past. And we can do this while uh, making a, a, a significant gesture to our railway heritage. Ashford is and always will be a railway town. Uh, so to use old rail buildings for a modern 21st century purpose is, is really good. Our reporter Leanne Castle has also been speaking to Graham Raisey. He's head of the EKC group and their students are set to benefit from this development. For the college, it's an absolutely fantastic opportunity. We're going to develop a, a new film school for Ashford. Um, for training the future generation of filmmakers, producers, um, creatives, innovators, um, an opportunity for young people to get the skills and live, work and uh, uh, play locally. There are going to be um, courses that will uh, allow young people to be able to train in filmmaking, in film production, in uh, music production, um, broad-based um, construction trades that the, that industry needs. Um, so a real opportunity for them to learn the skills that the film industry requires. When are you hoping to sort of, I mean obviously it's a long way off yet, when are you hoping people will actually start coming here and making this? Well we're hoping around the 2024-2025 timescale. Clearly uh, the time we come here uh, the development will be you know, up and running um, and you know, we're hoping that uh, the development happens fast. Uh, the training is needed now. Um, to be ready for when the actual studios open. Kent Online reports. An update now on a story we brought to you in yesterday's episode and a woman killed in a crash on the M2 at the weekend has been named. Flight attendant Hailey Lee Locke from Broadstairs has been described as a beautiful person. She died in a collision on the London-bound carriageway between Faversham and Sittingbourne on Sunday morning. Her colleagues say she was lovely and caring. A 40-year-old man's been arrested on suspicion of causing death by dangerous driving and drink driving. Police are hunting two suspected robbers after a man was kicked and stamped on in Canterbury. The victim had to be treated in hospital for facial injuries after being targeted in Kingsmead Road, but nothing was stolen. We've got computer-generated images of the suspects on the website. Details have emerged of how a young man died near Gravesend after coming off a stolen motorbike. 22-year-old Kieran Ingram is thought to have hit a bump in the road while riding along Park Pale in Shorn in June. An inquest has heard how his helmet came off in the crash and he didn't have a motorcycle license. Staff at Canterbury's RSPCA Animal Centre say a new cat under their care is by far one of the worst eye neglect cases seen in a decade. Bella the grey tabby is now only partially sighted because her former owners didn't take her to the vet to treat glaucoma. The charity says it's confident Bella will be in her forever home in time for Christmas. Now firefighters have been telling the Kent Online podcast that they've been to more than 200 accidental kitchen fires so far this year and now they want us to try and reduce that number items such as tea towels and oven gloves left near the hob are often to blame and it's feared the number of blazes is actually much higher with many going unreported well i've been speaking to tunbridge wells firefighter florence kutzer the study found that we've responded to over 200 um, incidents such as these um, since the start of the year um, and that's obviously only the ones that we've been called to because um, people that responded to the survey said that, you know, sometimes they've had a, a near miss, but they haven't actually 
uh, dialed 999 and asked for the fire service to attend. So uh, we think it's probably more than that. So uh, we just thought it was a really good opportunity and time to launch this because it's something we all can easily do. And, and we've all got busy homes and busy kitchens and, um, you know, lots of things that sometimes get in the way. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us some of the, the classic things that you see if you are called out to an accidental kitchen fire. What's normally started it? I think it's just um, sort of debris and, and household items that have been left on uh, the hob or near the hob. So um, typical things like the tea towels, oven gloves, but even things like laundry baskets, clothes, um, toys. You know, I've got two kids myself and it's so easy to sort of turn around and put something down without thinking about it. Um, so it's a whole uh, a whole range of things. Um, and, and it's just that that living living busy lifestyle and, and being being busy and distracted sometimes at those crucial moments so yeah easily done and what sort of scene are you greeted with if you do go to a fire like this because presumably in a kitchen there's lots of flammable things it can spread pretty quickly and, and maybe overwhelm someone who who's there they wouldn't know what to do and obviously the best thing is to to call you guys I mean it can be quite devastating I should think yeah, it can be, and and um, you know, and quite scary as well, especially for um elderly in the community, um, who might not react so quickly or might not be aware of it so fast. Um, and we've had some of the things with microwaves and and so on. So I think we're really encouraging people that have have said that they've had near misses, whatever the size of the incident or or fire, do call us. That's what we're here for. Um, don't put yourself at risk. Um, and if something does happen and it escalates quickly, you just get yourself and anybody else in the house uh, out of the building as quickly as possible. Obviously, if you can remove those things and take them outside, um, you know, that can be a, a good course of action. But it really depends. So we just say, keep yourself safe, don't put yourself at risk and call us. And I guess we're getting close to the time of year where we're going to be spending perhaps maybe a bit more time in the kitchen and cooking big roast <laughs> dinners and what have you. I suppose even then, I mean, your advice is to is as you say to keep things well away from the hob um remind me of the name of the campaign because it's got a catchy title hasn't it it has yeah so it's called hook it don't cook it and it's encouraging everybody to keep oven gloves and tea towels at least 50 centimeters away from your hob uh and so that's roughly an arm's length so you know whether that's a, a hook or a drawer um uh you know everyone can find a little bit of space away from that from that hob surface um uh, to keep it clear and keep it out of harm's way um and uh, part of the campaign is if people are struggling to do that that they can uh, go online and uh, or call to to claim their free hook to, to be part of this campaign and, and keep themselves safe. Kent Online reports. Plans to build a new road tunnel between Kent and Essex have taken a step forward. The government's accepted an application for a development consent order for the Lower Thames crossing, which basically means it can proceed on to the next stage. Highways bosses say the new link between Gravesend and Tilbury will ease congestion at Dartford, but there are concerns about the impact it will have on the local environment. Elsewhere, controversial plans for a 4,000 home garden city to the south of Canterbury have moved ahead. Council bosses have recommended Mountfield Park, which would also include primary schools and a health centre, be given the go-ahead to boost the district's economy. That's despite concerns about a large amount of sewage being ferried out of the estate. A final decision is due later this week. And there are plans to add more beach huts to a stretch of coastline on Sheppey. Council bosses want to put another 12 along the promenade at the Lees and the same number in Laysdown. They currently 
currently make nearly £30,000 a year from beach huts and hundreds of people are on a waiting list for one. They say extra money will help maintain seafront areas. Now, what do you do when you're told you're too skinny to be a professional footballer? Well, for a Whitstable man, it was moved to Dubai and become a bodybuilder. 28-year-old Tom Thorman had been scouted by several clubs when he was just 14 but was apparently let go because he simply wasn't strong enough. Well, he now weighs in at 18 stone and has become the overall champion with the biggest fitness federation in the world, Pure Elite. And he's been speaking from his home in Dubai to our reporter, Brad Harper. I probably didn't grow from like the age of like nine till 15 years old. I didn't grow at all. I was just like the same size. Mum and dad used to call me Tiddler. And after that, I just got tall, but I was lanky. That was it. Like, I didn't have any muscle on my frame. I was just tall, lanky. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't like the way I looked. You know, I didn't like to take my top off, um, low in confidence. And that, that, that was one of the main reasons why I joined the gym, just a bit of confidence in myself. How old were you when you fell out of love with football? I'd say I was probably about 17 years old. You know, I, I had a couple of years in the gym. I was still playing football at the time, but um, I, was, I was still getting those like, little things saying, oh, you're not strong enough. Um, and I, I was just like, well, I'll get stronger in the gym. And then that's when my love for foot, uh, for the gym took over, really. Yeah, so at the, at the start, I was training three to four times a week. Um, I was still going out with my friends, you know, enjoying myself. Um, and then I got to a point, I think I was around about 21 years old. So I was doing that from about six, well, 15, all the way to about 20. And then I decided I wanted, really want to take things to the next level. You know, there was people around me in the gym that I saw in real good shape. They were doing competitions. Um, and I thought, well, actually, that's, that's something that I might want to do. So the age of 23, I decided to do my first ever competition. And that was with Purely, that was called. That first competition, um, I mean, what was it like sort of being there? It's the first time that you'd ever done something like that. And you've gone from, you know... You said to some of the names that your parents used to say to you and you said to yourself that you were lanky, but being there next to people that are, you know, obviously quite well built, muscly. I mean, what was that first experience like? Yeah, so in that time, I actually built up quite a good amount of muscle. So from the age of 20 to 23, I built quite a good amount of muscle. Um, you know, I felt a lot of confident in myself, completely my mindset changed completely. Uh, I didn't mind taking my top off. Um, obviously, it was my first show. I was nervous. Um, but I actually won that show as well. So my first ever competition, I did win. And then from there, obviously, my confidence grew even more. And I was like, I really want to go down this route. So I continued to do that. And then uh, my second show, I come third in my, uh, which was in 2019, which was in my first pro show. And then uh, in 2022, the start of this month, I took overall the, the whole show. So world champion of 2022. What advice would you give to someone that is just thinking, maybe I need to get fitter, but hasn't yet got the motivation to do that? I would suggest setting yourself a goal. Sounds so simple, but just set yourself a goal and just do not stop until you get there. You're going to have days where you're not feeling motivated but that's where you've just got to let that discipline kick in 
and you just got to keep going for it. Kent Online Sports. Football and Gillingham will face a Premier League side if they make it into the third round of the FA Cup. They've been drawn at home against Leicester City, who won the Cup last year. The Jills still need to beat Dagenham and Redbridge in a second round replay next Thursday, though, after drawing one all with the non-league side at the weekend. And Kent tennis star Emma Rajikanu is collecting her MBE today. The 20-year-old from Orpington became the first British woman to win a Grand Slam since 1977 with her victory at the US Open last year. She'll be given the award for services to tennis at a ceremony at Windsor Castle. Well, that's all from us for today. Thanks ever so much for listening. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. You can also get an update of the top stories direct to your email each morning. That's via the briefing. And to sign up to that, just head to kentonline.co.uk. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the FG Barnes Group, with showrooms in Canterbury and Maidstone, offering a range of new and approved used cars, including MG, Seat and Vauxhall.